evidence and answers. Have you ever been asked, why are you a Christian? How do you know it's true? Many of us may stumble when asked this basic question. In today's broadcast, Pat will present four basic arguments about why he is a Christian. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Recently, Pat held his first ever Zoom apologetics conference entitled, Truth, Finding Clarity in Confusing Times. Guest speakers included Kirby Anderson, Fazal Rana, Randy Manley, and our own Pat Zukran. Now with part two of Why I Am a Christian, is Pat Zukran. What best accounts for this kind of design? Random chance? I think a more reasonable conclusion is an intelligent designer. And scientists, both Christian and non-Christian, are beginning to realize the evidence for an intelligent designer is quite compelling. Robert Griffiths, winner of the Heinemann Award in Mathematics, the highest award given in the mathematical sciences stated, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Agnostic and award-winning NASA scientist Robert Jastrow stated this, and he sums it up very nicely for us. He says, for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Complexity and design point to an intelligent designer. And finally, we have the moral argument. There is a universal moral law that we know is right and true. And the argument goes like this. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. It comes from Romans chapter 2. Cultures all around the world, we have the same universal moral law code. It might be applied differently, but we have pretty much the same moral law code. In all cultures, adultery is wrong. In all cultures, stealing is wrong. Unjust killing or murder, rape, Child molestation is wrong. We have a universal moral law code. Where does that come from? Can't have a moral law without a moral lawgiver. That was one of the problems that perplexed C.S. Lewis. You might be familiar with this man. He wrote those great novels, The Chronicles of Narnia. And he was an atheist well into his adulthood. But one of the things that perplexed him was the problem of evil. And he said this, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? When I was uh, with an atheist and we were debating on the radio, Luke, my first question was, well, how did you come to that conclusion of atheism? And he said, because of all the evil that I see in the world. And I said, Luke, define evil for me. No one had ever asked him that before, and he kind of got stuck. And, he went, e and then he kind of dodged it and refused to answer the question. I think he saw the fallacy of his position. Because if something is objectively evil, 
then there's an absolute standard of good by which you're judging that. And where did that absolute objective standard of good come from, from which we have departed? You cannot have a universal moral law without a moral lawgiver. Immanuel Kant, one of the great philosophers of modern time, after criticizing the arguments for the existence of God, ended up saying this, two things fill my mind ever new with an increasing admiration and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect upon them, the starry heavens above and the moral law within me. Universal moral law code points to a moral lawgiver. And then we have Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed his claim through his miraculous, sinless life, ministry, and resurrection. The New Testament gives us a very accurate record of the life of Christ. And Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into all the evidences for the accuracy of the New Testament. You'll have to go to our website there at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can find articles and radio shows on that particular topic, right? But the New Testament gives us an accurate record of the life of Christ. But not only do we have the New Testament, we have over a dozen non-Christian, or what we call anti-Christian, because these guys really didn't like Christianity, Roman and Jewish sources that confirm dozens upon dozens of facts recorded in the New Testament about the life of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to point to the resurrection, okay? Because the resurrection is the ultimate proof that indeed Jesus was who he said he was, the divine Son of God. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to go with the bare minimum facts, all right? Even if you don't believe the Gospels are accurate, all right. Here are the facts that we are all agreed upon. One of my mentors, Dr. Gary Habermas, studied over 500 scholars from every walk, liberal, evangelical, atheist, agnostic. All right. He studied them all. And here's what historians and New Testament scholars we all agree upon. All right. Here are the bare facts we agree upon. Jesus died by means of crucifixion. The tomb site was known and was found empty on the third day. That many claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. We have the sudden transformation of the lives of the disciples. The preaching begins in Jerusalem. And the preaching for the resurrection begins soon after the empty tomb. It begins very early. And then we have testimony of skeptics like James and Paul. Well, first, Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Not only do we have the New Testament written in the generation of the eyewitnesses, we also have several non-Christian accounts that confirm Jesus Christ was a historical person and he died by means of crucifixion. In fact, we would call these anti-Christian accounts because they really did not like Christianity. If you read their material, they really had a disdain for the Christian faith. Now, those of you in the legal field know that enemy attestation is one of the most powerful evidences or testimonies in court. When your opponent, when the opposing side agrees or confirms your facts, that's one of the most powerful testimonies in court. 
That's what we have here. We have over a dozen sources that affirm a historical Jesus and many facts of the Gospels. And several of these writers confirm Jesus was a historical person who died by means of crucifixion. For example, Tacitus, writing in the early 2nd century AD, he is an outstanding Roman historian. Much of what we know of the Roman Empire at that time, and even the Greek Empire, we know from Tacitus. And he writes this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. All right, you can see he really doesn't like Christianity, but he affirms what? There was a historical Jesus. There was a Tiberius, as recorded in the Gospels. Christ died at the hands of Pontius Pilate, as recorded in the Gospels, and that the disciples believed he had risen from the dead. Thus, he summarizes the message of the Gospels. Then we have, of course, that famous passage from Josephus. Josephus here is a first century Jewish historian, very good Jewish historian, who also affirms many people, places, and events recorded in the New Testament. And here in this brief paragraph here, he also summarizes the Gospels, that Jesus was a real historical person. He lived a unique, virtuous life. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover, and many of his disciples believe that he had risen from the dead. And so here in this brief passage, you have another non-Christian source that affirms Jesus was a real historical person, that he indeed was crucified. And you've got archaeology as well. For example, we have this called the Nazareth Decree, discovered in the late 19th century. This edict was written by the Emperor Claudius there in the early first century. He had gone down to Israel to investigate the account of Jesus and the resurrection. And when he left Israel, he left this decree behind the Nazareth decree, all right? It's a very interesting plaque that he left there, all right? He commands people not to mess with graves. And if anyone is caught tampering with graves, they will suffer the penalty of death. Very strange decree to be leaving behind there, unless, makes all the sense in the world, if he had heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ there. And that's what was the cause of the creation of this decree. The evidence is quite compelling. We could go a lot longer and talk about it. But enough to say that pretty much all New Testament historians from all walks agree that Christ was crucified. Here are two atheists, John Dominic Crossan and Bart Ehrman, they reject 80% of the Gospels as unhistorical. But yet when it comes to the crucifixion, John Dominic Crossan says that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman says one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So Christ was crucified. Second, the tomb site was known and was found empty. The gospel writers tell you where Jesus was buried, right? In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish ruling council, right? Now, many skeptics say, well, you know, the gospel writers came up. He's a fictional character. Well, if you 
wanted to create a fictional character who people would not be able to investigate or confirm, and you didn't want to know, you didn't want people to know where Jesus was buried, you pick some obscure figure, all right, and say Jesus was buried in this guy's tomb. You do not pick such a high-profile public figure, like a member of the Jewish ruling council, and say Jesus is buried in this man's tomb. Joseph Arimathea was a fictional member, someone who's never on the Jewish ruling council. The testimony of the apostles would have been rejected immediately. You don't pick such a high-profile person, such a high-profile public figure like that, if you don't want people to know where Jesus was buried. Next, we have many resurrection accounts. Hundreds of people claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And so sure were they that they had seen the resurrected Lord that they died for their testimony. Now, psychologists and psychiatrists know hundreds of people do not have the same hallucination at the same time in such a short period. Also, hallucinations come to people who want to believe. And there were skeptics like Thomas and the Apostle Paul, who was an opponent of Christianity. They didn't want the resurrection to be true. And so hallucination does not explain the many hundreds of resurrection appearances. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, those first five verses, is an ancient creed handed down to us that Paul received. And we can date this creed to within two to three years of the resurrection. All right? Next, we have the transformed lives of the disciples. What best explains the transformation in the life of the apostles? Disciples, if you know the story, were cowering in fear, completely afraid of losing their lives. All right? What accounts for the fact that suddenly, just a few days later, they go right into the city of Jerusalem, right into the belly of the beast, they go right into Jerusalem in the most hostile arena possible. The men who crucified Christ and sentenced him to death were still there and seated still in uh, the seats of authority. And they go right into the city of Jerusalem in the face of the most hostile crowd and proclaim, you know, Jesus, the guy you just crucified, his grave right outside is empty. He has risen from the dead. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Messiah of Israel. And he demands that you bow down and worship him. What accounts for that sudden transformation? What is the most reasonable explanation for that sudden transformation? History shows us men and women will not die for what they know is a complete lie. And they will not send their family and loved ones to their death for something they know to be a complete lie. What account? for that sudden transformation of the disciples. Next, the preaching begins in Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Well, that's the worst place to preach the resurrection. All the eyewitnesses are there. All the opponents who crucified Christ are still there seated in the seats of power. The message of the resurrection of Christ would have never lasted in such a hostile arena because when you go to the old city of Jerusalem, it's not a very big city. And all that the apostles preach could have been easily verified by the eyewitnesses who are still there. And they're hostile witnesses, all right? They're looking to discredit the teaching and the message of the apostles. And they go right into Jerusalem. 
to preach that message. That's the worst place to preach the resurrection if it indeed did not happen. If Jesus was not a historical person and did not do the things they were talking about, oh, Jerusalem's the worst place to preach that message. How could it have survived in that kind of hostile arena? And the preaching of the resurrection begins very early, days after the empty tomb. In fact, the creed from 1 Corinthians 15, we can date to within two to three years of the resurrection. Historical studies show it takes about two to three generations, 80 to 100 years, for legends to start creeping into a historical account. Why is that? Well, because the eyewitnesses who can confirm the account have to die and pass away from the scene. That's why legends take two to three generations to develop. Well, the preaching of the resurrection begins just days, just days uh, after the empty tomb. The letters of Paul are written 10 to 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. The Gospels are written 20 to 40 years in the lifetime then of the eyewitnesses who could have verified these accounts as true or false. The testimony of the apostles, the Gospels would have never lasted had they not been true. Then we have the fact, the testimony of people like James and Paul. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, didn't even believe that his brother was the Messiah. And the apostle Paul, a scholar who persecuted the Christians. What accounts for their sudden transformation and suddenly believing Jesus Christ is indeed the divine Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. It must have been something very compelling. Well, those are the facts that we are all agreed upon. And any kind of explanation must somehow account these facts that we are agreed upon. And throughout the centuries, people have tried to give naturalistic explanations for the empty tomb, and all of them has miserably failed. I can't go into a whole lot of detail, just briefly. The oldest one out there is that the disciples stole the body while the guards were asleep. That's from Matthew chapter 28. And those of you in the legal field and those of you with historical background know there's a lot of problems with this one, right? If the disciples stole the body while the guards were asleep, if they were sleeping, how do they know it was the disciples who stole the body? All right? Then is it possible that 11 fishermen could come late at night, get past a group of elite Roman guards in the middle of the night, roll a 2,000-pound boulder up an incline in complete silence and not wake anyone up? Also, I mean, the accounts don't match uh, someone stealing the body. When people looked in the empty tomb, they saw the shroud cloth that Jesus was buried in neatly folded up. All right, if you're stealing a body, you just grab, you know, you grab the shroud and you just throw it to the side and you run out with the body, okay? Not only that, history tells us men and women will not die for what they know to be a complete lie. And all these men preached a message they knew would bring them a life of suffering, of shame, and even death, not only to them, but to their loved ones who would embrace the message of Jesus Christ. So this explanation, although it's the oldest, it has not lasted. Well, the legend theory, as we stated, the Gospels are in too early for legends to develop. 
The women went to the wrong tomb. This was one introduced to us by Kursop Lake there in the 19th century. And he states that, well, you know, it was early in the morning. The sun hadn't come up yet. The women were crying and they went to the wrong tomb. They saw it was empty and they ran with joy to the disciples and said, the tomb is empty. He has risen from the dead. And the disciples went to the wrong tomb. All right. And they said, hey, it's empty. And they proclaimed a resurrected Christ. Well, that theory hasn't lasted because all the authorities would have to do, since they knew where the tomb was, in the, in Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They knew where the tomb was. They could have just gone to the correct tomb, produced the body, and that's the end of Christianity. The swoon theory. This theory teaches that Jesus didn't really die. He just went unconscious, all right? And the cool, moist air of the tomb and rest, you know, three days rest, he suddenly regained consciousness, rolled a two-ton stone away, got past the guards, marched about 13 miles to Emmaus and appeared to his disciples as a glorious risen Savior. All right? Well, this theory hasn't lasted. First of all, those who crucified Christ could recognize a dead corpse. All right? In fact, gospel writers tell you they investigated the corpse because they were going to break the legs because they didn't want the bodies hanging there during the Passover. But when it came to the body of Jesus, he was already dead. In fact, to confirm his death, they stabbed him in his side. And John records that out came flowing blood and water. Not only that, there's 80 pounds of perfumes and ointment that's done to prepare the body to lie in the grave. And then the you know, skin and soft tissue deteriorate. And then you collect the bones and put it in an ossuary. So there's a lot of perfume and oils that go to prepare a body. Those who are preparing the body would have recognized if he was slightly alive. And finally, you know, David Strauss is an atheist, put the death nail to this theory. He said, is it possible that Christ could have survived such a beating? And then without any medical help, food or water, suddenly revive, roll away a two-ton stone. And even if he did that, how would he have appeared to his disciples? Would he have appeared as a glorious risen savior? Probably not. He would have appeared as a beaten man in need of some serious medical attention. Well, really, the only theory that is proposed is the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory teaches that the disciples hallucinated or had a dream that Jesus was alive. And the dream or hallucination was so compelling that they believed he had risen from the dead and went into the streets preaching that Jesus is alive. Well, that theory has not withstood the test. All the uh, authorities would have to do is go to the grave, produce the body, march it down the street, and that's the end of Christianity. The naturalistic explanations for the empty tomb have pretty much failed, all right? The most reasonable conclusion is indeed Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now, there are some serious implications if indeed Jesus has risen from the dead. First, God exists, and he has designed the universe and each person for a purpose. We live in a universe that is designed and custom-made for us with a purpose, and each one of us, indeed, were designed by God to fulfill a mission that he has created for us, for us to discover and to fulfill. Next, there's meaning and purpose for our lives, there's a mission that God has created us to fulfill. In Ephesians 2.10, it states, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
third, death is not the end. The grave has been conquered, and hope and eternal life are found in Jesus Christ. And finally, we can know God. He has made it possible through His Son, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the divine Son of God, who lived a miraculous life and confirmed His claim to be the divine Son of God through His miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Christianity is one of the greatest messages that I had ever heard, and it's it's the greatest message ever that has been presented to mankind. And it's not a message we just believe by blind faith, but it's one that indeed has compelling and powerful evidence to back up its case. That's why I believe in Jesus Christ. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Zucran.